Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, this is Alan Jetty. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this latest PTJ podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Landry, who is Professor and Division Chief and the Doctor of Physical Therapy Division within the Department of Orthopedic Surgery in the School of Medicine at Duke University. Welcome, Mike. Glad to have you here. Thank you, Alan. It's a real pleasure. Mike is also a member of the editorial board of PTJ, and so we're delighted to have the opportunity to talk with him about his latest publication just just out in the March issue of PTJ entitled Zika Virus, Global Public Health, Disability, and Rehabilitation, Connecting the Dots. And this is a point-of-view article within PTJ, and I urge people to take a look at it if you have the opportunity. I'm delighted to have the chance to discuss this point of view with you, Mike. And let me start with my first question. In your article, you note that the World Health Organization has declared the Zika virus as a global public health emergency. And not only an emergency, you argue that it's precedent-setting. Could you talk a little bit about why you think the Zika virus epidemic is precedent-setting? Thank you, Alan. I think that really cuts to the heart of this whole point of view. But even before I answer, let me just say thank you to PTJ and to this whole podcast. It's going a little bit out on a limb to start thinking about physical therapy and rehabilitation in infectious disease outbreaks or in infectious disease states. In my opinion, when Margaret Chan declared this as an emergency, it it truly was precedent-setting. Usually emergencies are declared by WHO because of some nefarious, deadly disease outbreak. You could think a little bit about the Ebola events that happened in West Africa uh, not too many years ago, which was also a public health emergency. But with the Zika virus declaration, the first time, at least in my opinion, where WHO reported, discussed, and issued the emergency warning or the red light, not because of a deadly infectious disease, but because of an infectious disease that created significant disability as part of the pathogenesis. So with the Zika virus, we're talking now about usually in adults, the demonstration is in Guillain-Barre syndrome. And among pregnant women who a small percentage of their children were born with microcephaly, most of which surround a disablement model and not necessarily a mortality measured outcome. You mentioned Dr. Chan at the WHO, and in the early part of your article, you talked about her making the point that the Zika virus was spreading explosively around the world and the alarm was extremely high. Have you kept track of the trend since you put together the data in your article, and is it continuing in the way that you spoke about it in the piece? Yeah, I've been uh, very lucky over the last six or seven months uh, because I've been working as a consultant with the World Health Organization right in Geneva. In one of my last visits, there was actually a, uh, a Zika virus conference that occurred. I had a chance to sort of peer in a little bit. I think what happened after uh, last year, there was a little bit of a change in the pattern, especially in the incident rates, and that was because of the cooling temperature. So I think, uh, well, in fact, 
most of the uh, the large scale public health agencies sort of pulled back their warning signs and the warning lights on Zika. But if you've looked at some of the news recently in the last two weeks, especially in the southern states of the United States, such as Texas and Florida, there is now a new sense of emergency starting to occur, and that is because of these warming temperatures. Uh, two factors seem to have happened in the last half year or so. One, the winter months were not as cold as they once were, and therefore the mosquito numbers didn't decline as much as everyone thought, which means that there is an assumption, a presumption rather, that uh, we're going to have another spike in Zika-related infections. And so uh, although the lull has happened in terms of the warning, I think most of the Americas are now preparing and bracing for a fairly significant increase. So another interesting development uh, very recently, in fact, has been the FDA nominee by President Trump has equated the opioid crisis in America on the same level as Ebola and Zika threats. So that might be telling us something about the depth and the breadth of the opioid addiction, and that is a public health crisis. But conversely, it is also sending a signal about how important infectious disease states like Zika are especially in the southern United States, when an FDA nominee actually in a public statement links those two together. So on a political level, I think that sends a signal, a very strong signal. Dr. Thomas Frieden, who's the director of the CDC, he's warned the public that without collective action, there's going to be an imminent threat to public health in the United States for decades to come. Why is that the case? It seems like a much longer threat than many past epidemics. The future is really unclear, and the, the development or the pathogenesis of this disease state is, is very unclear. And I think that's why Dr. Frieden, the former director of the CDC, discussed the extent to which this is going to have an impact on the population throughout the Americas. Maybe there's a few things that I would add to this. One of them, we know that the outcomes of Zika infection, and albeit in a small proportion of those who have been infected, but nonetheless, among those who demonstrate the clinical profile, these are scenarios that imply disability. So, for instance, if we think about children being born with microcephaly, and these children will have a variety of different impairments, and they'll also have a variety or different amplitudes of demonstration of those impairments. And so the impact on individual families, individual people, and their communities are altered. We in physical therapy and those in the rehabilitation professions know very well how this works, and we need to start thinking of how the community are re-engineered such that they habilitate folks who have current disabilities and those who will in the future. I think one of the most unclear pictures here really have to do with we're not sure if there is any latency on the demonstration. We have no idea truly, the scientific community really has no idea at this point in time if there will be a latency or a second wave of people who have been infected in the early days if, if in, in future ways they actually will be demonstrating different clinical profiles. It is a very blank slate with very little evidence. We also know that there currently are no vaccinations that have been approved for treatment of Zika. And so as we start considering, one, the current population who have had disabilities and the impact they will have down the line among their families and communities, 
But I think we also have to think about new waves of infection, especially as the summer months are coming towards the Americas. And without a pure treatment uh, course for folks who do demonstrate the Zika virus, we just don't know what the future is going to be. And I think that was much to do with why Dr. Frieden at the time warned about this imminent threat to public health now and into the future. Since you mentioned the sequelae of infection with the Zika virus, let me go on to another point that you made in your article that really struck me. You made what I saw as a fairly bold statement that the neurological clinical outcomes that you've mentioned, secondary to Zika virus, would be considered extremely rehab sensitive. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the extent to which we have evidence that the sequelae of Zika can in fact be ameliorated through targeted rehab interventions. Yes, well, thank you for noticing the bold statement, but I'm very happy to make it because oftentimes because we've contextualized Zika within an infectious disease model, and because infectious disease has not really been part of our strong focus in rehabilitation and certainly not in physical therapy, it is almost as though the impairments that are demonstrated by people affected by Zika are somehow different than if those impairments are profiled from a non-communicable disease or another more common or disease state that we're more familiar with. I think part of our problem here is that we, we've assumed that infectious disease is, if you will, beyond our scope. I argue that, in fact, it is completely within our scope of practice. If you think about the clinical outcomes at the adult with people with Guillain-Barre syndrome, there's plenty of uh, strong evidence that discusses how rehabilitation, physical therapy in particular, uh, applied during the acute phase of Guillain-Barre can result in you know, greater mobility among joints. You have people who are uh, very immobile during the acute phase, and as we maintain their mobility, when they regain their uh, strength, they can actually have a better outcome. So it's as though you intervene early on a functional capacity perspective, it prepares for the future state. In the child who demonstrates with microcephaly, there's a lot of confusion in my opinion on what microcephaly is. It is simply a collection of uh, clinical manifestations. It's not necessarily a diagnosis. And so the next level down is to understand what are the actual impairments among the, those children who are born with microcephaly. Now, that is where you have a very large range of clinical outcomes. You have children who are very seriously affected from a functional level. The other end of the spectrum, you have children who are very uh, superficially affected. So if you, for instance, have a child who is born with simple hearing loss, there are ways to intervene on a rehabilitation model to help them across their lives so that they can hear. That, that's a very simplistic approach. If you think about some of the other conditions that are noted from microcephaly, one of them is joint and articular pain and dysfunction. So you'll have children born with club foot. We have decades of experience in global health of how we can intervene with club foot and have very positive outcomes in the future. So what I wrote in the article has to do with not understanding microcephaly as an end product, but only a collection of impairments, many of which we can be treating just as though we would treat a child with cerebral palsy or another diagnostic category. I think we often shy away from anything related to infectious disease because it's not common to us. 
I think you made that point very well in the uh, the point of view, and so uh, I appreciate your elaborating on it. And it also reminds me, as someone who has a background in public health, that one one could look at this Zika virus epidemic from a classic public health perspective, and the interventions that you've been talking about in contrast to the more typical primary prevention are really more secondary and tertiary prevention where the rehab professional fits in much more comfortably. But I was struck in your piece that you didn't look at it from a public health perspective. You looked at the epidemic from a Foucauldian perspective of discourse analysis. Could you talk a little bit about what that perspective brings to this issue that attracted you to using that as the lens for looking at this issue? Well, I think one of the wonderful article categories that we have in PTJ are, in fact, these points of views because it, it provides a little bit of latitude to an author and an author team such as, as mine on this particular uh, article. My background in terms of doctoral training is in political science. And so we've often used the works of Michel Foucault in terms of power differential. If you look at Foucaultian analysis, it really is this uh, notion of the struggle of power, politics, and governments, and how all of this plays together. So the way I like to look at this, or at least one viewpoint or one lens that one can use, is this Foucaultian perspective. So you look at why is it that, first of all, Zika, which by and large has affected fairly low-income countries, and even within those low-income countries, among the if you will, the lowest income cohorts. Now, those folks, those cohorts of people are often have the lowest amount of political power or political social capital that, can, that they can play. So, for instance, or maybe in contrast, if, if Zika were really to have affected populations in the Upper East uh, quadrant of the United States, might we have seen a different outcome? a different amount of government intervention, a different amount of multilateral interest in the outcomes. Now, of course, this is just a way of looking at it, but when we see that, one, this has affected mostly low-income countries, and within those countries, the poorest of the poor, if you'll permit me to use the quote, then we have a fairly significant power differential. We could also look at the outcomes of interest or the outcomes that occur with Zika are very much around disability and the disablement model. And if we look at power dynamics, we often know that people with disabilities and the associations that surround people with disabilities often have very low amounts of political power. They often have low amounts of political social capital to play to affect change. So in my career for about 20 years working in global health in conflict zones and in areas of natural disasters and infectious disease outbreaks, we often see this as a power differential. For instance, when, a few years ago when we had the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, we had a strong you know, collective international global community to enter into the affected areas, but really the outcomes were focused on a fairly poor environment of West Africa which was also francophone, which was also even more weak from a political perspective. So I think when we see these global outbreaks of infectious disease, and particularly those that are affecting lower-income countries and lower-income communities, they have very weak political power. And so governments, political actors tend not to be as interested or to engage as much. 
The point that I try to move forward here is because the outcome of interest is disability, and because disability and people with disabilities are often among the weakest as it relates to political power, therefore, we often see very little collective and global engagement to address those very issues. Now, in physical therapy, this is an area where I think we can actually be useful. I think we can actually engage in that political discourse to empower, to work alongside, to affect that very equation. Well, that brings me to my last question. One of your key messages is that the full effects of the Zika virus epidemic is going to continue to emerge over the coming years and that rehab professionals need to connect the dots, I think is the phrase you used, among the infectious disease proliferation around the world and the emerging role of rehabilitation professionals and the role that we can and should uh, play. Talk a little bit more, if you would, about what you think individual rehab professionals who are listening to this podcast can do to help this situation. Here's where, you know, looking into our crystal ball, looking into the future and, and figuring out how we might bend this curve or change the discussion. I think among the listeners and certainly among physical therapists globally, you might have a few different categories. There are those who, you know, might find this somewhat interesting and say, but, you know, really our role is in this chronic disease or articulation or orthopedics, et cetera. And that, they would be very right in assuming that that is a part and as we think about our future place in the healthcare system, whether it be local, national, or global, we have to consider what are the new emerging areas of interest? Where are the new emerging areas that the political powers that be are also interested? The FDA has an interest to some extent in uh, infectious disease, the CDC. We need, I think, at least from my perspective as physical therapists, to begin to engage in those conversations. To fully engage with those conversations, it's as though we need to start learning a new language, a new language of public policy, a new language of politics. That's, if you will, at the macro level. I think clinicians at the micro level also have a very strong role to play. I'll give you an example. I have a PT colleague of mine who works in a hospital in London in the United Kingdom. And uh, the Brits sent a lot of aid workers to the affected areas in West Africa during the Ebola crisis. Many of those aid workers, health professions, returned home only to a few days, weeks later, demonstrate the signs and symptoms of Ebola. And they were admitted and quarantined. And I don't believe that anyone in this particular hospital considered the idea of rehabilitation, physical therapy, among those with infectious disease just returning from West Africa. But there was this PT in this hospital who decided actually that would be an incorrect assumption and that PT has a role because here you're going to have uh, patients who've been exposed, who are demonstrating the signs and symptoms in a quarantine bed for a number of weeks. Forget about the idea that it's because of Ebola or, or Zika or something else. We know about the body. We know about prolonged sedentary stays in hospitals. So this PT, this heroic PT, convinced that hospital that they needed to be involved, and she became involved in the care for many of the people in the United Kingdom who actually demonstrated, again, the signs and symptoms of Ebola. It would have been easier for her just not to, but she truly believed that there was a role for her and PT to play. I think that's the hustle that we need across the world in physical therapy. 
We need to be seeking out those untraditional areas of practice and demystifying what the context is and becoming involved. I mean, let's face it, Ellen, you know, this almost sounds a bit boastful, but we as physical therapists are experts in movement. And so who else, if not us, to advocate for people who we know will have mobility impairments if we don't engage along that process? So I believe from the discussion level, such as reading, let's say, an article like this, uh, I'll also admit I learned a ton from writing this very article, you know, right from that level of discussion all the way through to those individual heroic actions among a particular group of PTs, all of us have a role to play. Well, I think that example is a great one to end on. And I really want to thank you and your colleagues for writing The Point of View. And I want to urge uh, listeners of this podcast to go to PTJ and the March issue and take a look at The Point of View, uh, Landry et al. And I look forward to uh, further discussions with you going forward. Thank you, Dr. Landry. I appreciate the time.